You're listening to See Here, Brother. My name's Rich Wilson. And my name is Josh Wilson. And we're a couple of brothers. We love film and love literature, and we just like sharing that with you and with each other. So thanks for tuning in. Glad to have you. Yeah. So this week we've had a bit of um, some programming shuffling going Jostling on. Jostling around. For the last uh, couple months, summer has had... Um, I guess you could say more personal challenges between the two of us. So we got a bit behind on our on our initial schedule, but we're kind of catching up. We're gonna get caught up. We're gonna get it's caught gonna up. It's gonna be good. And it's gonna be a bevy of new material. Right, just whatever every what everybody needs has been is more. For. <laughs> that's what everybody needs is more. We're just gonna start doing it more like a Netflix series, right. where we just drop fifty episodes at the same time. Fifty. Okay, well that may be a little bit Three. of an exaggeration, <laughs> but um, this week we're going to be I talking still about... remember the combination. Three. <laughs> there you go. Our first Futurama, for those of you hey, that have the See Here Brother bingo card, you can scratch <laughs> off. Futurama reference has already... That should just be the free space though, really. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so this week we are... We, we watched um, the... What year did this movie come out? <laughs> 88, I think. 1988. Very good. The 1988 action comedy Midnight Run. And then we also um, read a short story called Finding Billy Whitefeather, which we'll talk about after the break for our sponsor. Um, now, before I summarize Midnight Run, I just want to say that the reason that kind of made me, that prompted me to pick it for Rich, besides that he hadn't seen it before, was that usually an important factor in this? In yeah, this it's podcast. kind of the whole the whole format. But um, sadly, as you probably know, um, uh, I guess a couple months ago at this point, the great uh, Charles Grodin died, and the great com- comic actor who had so many really great roles in the seventies and eighties, especially and into the nineties. And uh, so that he was on my mind, and I thought. You know, great Charles Grodin movie that Rich hadn't seen was Midnight yeah. Run. Well, so. I mean, if you listen to our last one, originally it was going to kind of work out to be like a Those Summer Nights thing where I had picked, you had picked this and I had picked something involving Midnight. We're going to still get back to Midnight's Children right. by Salman Rushdie. We're just going to pair it with something else. And in, in fact, it's going to probably work out a little bit better. Right. Um, but. So this week, instead. Yo, so instead, we'll we'll talk about a um, short story by Percival Everett, uh, Finding Billy Whitefeather. I first came across that in a one of the best of the year anthology kind of things, best American short stories or whatever. Uh, um, not in its original publication of the Virginia Quarterly Review, but um, it has just stuck with me. So we'll, we'll talk about that. It actually does work out fairly well as a, as a pairing. Yeah, so our our finding hunting our, our manhunt episode is uh, now in full session. So another unusual thing about this episode is that we're actually recording in person. Like Rich came very down, strange. came down to visit my house. I came down just for this. This is how high of a priority. House. Yeah, this podcast is that I was like, oh, we need to do this in person. That's right. Yeah. So. This is a special treat for all of you people listening that can't 
tell any difference between yeah. this and every single other they, episode. They, everyone always thought we were one and the same person anyway, just slightly altering their voice, so that's, that's not remarkable. There are times where the voices do sound kind of similar. I, know, so. I can't even... Especially when... You're wait, saying, wait, wait. When you're saying something particularly intelligent, I usually think that it's my voice. Wait a minute. And then when I'm saying something really stupid, I'm like, I get really confused because I'm pretty sure that was you. Wait a minute. But, uh... Was that me that just said that? <laughs> okay. All right. It was, no, it is fun, though. It's, sure. it, we're we're uh, going to experiment a little bit with the audio. Well, I, when I say we... I mean, I'm going to record this and then leave, and you're going to experiment. And then I'm going to do all the work. And then you're going to do the work. And That's then right. I do about two minutes of work by uh, upload. And by work, I mean I click a button to say, yes, upload it here. Right. And then the computer works for two minutes, and then I take a lot of the credit. There you go. It is. So now you've seen the, now you've seen <laughs> that's the, the making the of curtain. That's the making of episode right there. Very good. As well. All right, bonus content right there. Probably cut that. All right, so Don't and anyway, <laughs> you said you're gonna cut a lot of things, and you almost never do. Well, sometimes you probably forget what I actually <laughs> cut. So, anyways, let me talk a little bit about Midnight Run. So, Midnight Run, as I said, is an action comedy. It stars Charles Grodin as a um, accountant for a mobster, and it, and it also stars um, Robert De Niro in a rare comic role, or at least rare up to that point in his career. Um, I've seen a lot more comic roles since then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's kind of in his later career. He's he's uh, sort of fleshed out the comic chops and kind of parodied himself a bit. But but in this one, he it is a comic movie. But most of the time, he's kind of the straight man for for the comedy. Um, but at any rate, he is a bounty hunter who is hired by. Um, how do you say that guy's last Joe name? Joe Pantoliano? Thank you. From, Joe Pantoliano. Uh, uh, the only thing I know him from is The Matrix. You know, he's in The Matrix, but you you know, you know actually know him from some other things. It's just you forget. He's been, you know, he's that one of those character actors that does a ton of things. He was in, I just watched The Fugitive. The, oh, with, yeah. He's he's like yeah, the yeah, right-hand of man the, of, uh, of, the, of of Tommy Lee Jones yeah, and his Marshall I character. That. So yeah, he's in movies like that. He's in a lot of movies where you're like, oh yeah, because his hair always looks really different, you know. Like in this one, he has, like he's balding, but he has this like really ugly comb over it's, in this movie. Well, doesn't he also have like a horrible like, it's like just, '80s mullet kind of? Yeah, thing it's going kind of on? yeah, it's kind of like you know overcompensating for the part <laughs> of his hair that's that's receding. So yeah, anyway, so Joe Pantoliano he needs Maury's wigs. He plays yeah, he needs well Maury's wig we can't talk about Oh them. yeah, they're not we're a, contractually I'm sorry. obligated to not <laughs> mention true, them because they again that's gonna cost us Rob some money. De Niro we might come after us. Like so we talked about that. So um this is a call back to our last episode for our listener there. So um at any rate, uh Robert De Niro's character um, Jack Walsh is hired by um, the uh, bond uh, bond company guy to um, go hunt down and bring back um, the Duke. Is his his name is Jonathan Mark Dukas. He's called the Duke as a nickname, which gives you the impression before you see him that he's going to be you know some kind of tough guy for the mob. But he turns out to be Charles Grodin, and if you know who Charles Grodin, if you were a kid and you watched maybe the Beethoven movies, and he was like the dad of the Beethoven, you know, he's got this persona that's kind of like perpetually kind of just in a bad mood, just kind of like always has a kind of a, 
a, a sort of a, a sour look on his face. That's sort of his his. Uh, no, but he's not angry like persona. the same way that. No, he's just kind of annoyed at the world. That's just kind of his his um, his shtick. So, but he's he's a great actor, Charles Grodin from. Uh, movies like Elaine May's uh, Heartbreak Kid, which I was able to see recently, um, and um, and this one, and of course the Beethoven movies and some some other films that that um, that he's beloved for. And, and as I said, he he just passed away this year. So um, yeah, so this is an unlikely pairing: Robert De Niro, Charles Grodin. And uh, the basic plot of the movie is that Char- uh, De Niro goes across the country to fetch um, Mardukas and bring him back um, before a certain time uh, runs out so that he can get the money for the um, for the bounty and of course since Mardukas works for the mob the mob is after him um, as well and then the FBI is also after him because they're he's like their key um, He's the key uh, witness that will help them take down these this big mob boss, and played by then, Dennis Farina. Oh yeah, so the mob boss. Yeah, okay. So you want? To, yeah, the mob boss is who actually was a cop at one point, but he plays like a really nasty mob boss. All of the little actors, all of the small parts in this movie are are by are just great. They are great. Spot on characters like the lawyer is um, uh, Philip, uh, Philip Philip Baker Hall. Philip Baker Hall. Yeah. And it's a small role, but I was, it's I was going to mention his, his little, I don't think course, that's a good idea. Yeah. Everything, everything, it's like, I don't think that's a good idea. So then then, uh, you, then you got uh, the, the, the head of the FBI team that's after him, is um, who also just died this year, is Yafikado, who you know you might know from Alien or from some other movies like that. But he, he, was, he was just, he has the most deadpan, uh, you know, delivery of all of his bits um but so the fbi is after him the mobs after him and, and and a rival bounty hunter is after him as well but he manages to to bring mardukas back um across the country and then uh you know it doesn't really matter how the movie played the the way that it was resolved but they they take down the mob guy in the in the meantime by teaming up with the fbi and and that sort of thing so it's a it's a it's a movie where there's a lot of comic um, misadventures that happen when um, one thing, one plan goes wrong, and then the next plan, and the next plan, and it just kind of keeps tumbling like that. And who's conning who is always a a question throughout the movie. One of my favorite bits is where where um, he uh, De Niro accuses Charles Grodin of lying. No, to I was him. gonna bring that bit up yeah. as one of my favorite quotes because he was like. But as far as you knew, you were lying to me. Yeah. Like, yes, he I, said, "No, I, you lied to me first. And he's, he's like, like, "Yes, but you thought I was not lying to you, <laughs> and, but you knew you were lying to me, or whatever." Exactly. So, as far as you knew, you lied to me first. <laughs> exactly. That's such a great. That was one of my favorite bits as well. Yeah, Charles Grodin bit is great without Grodin's delivery of. That, oh, absolutely. But. I mean, really, his every single line throughout the movie is is that he delivers is just spot on perfect line reading and um it, it's the kind of thing where it's a preposterous plot uh you know in terms of the actual events throughout the movie but you kind of roll with it because it's it's just so funny and you know uh 
it it just teeters on the edge of believability versus not you know because especially when you see how many times you know uh, Robert De Niro gets like whacked with a door a car door or something or how many times throw. they almost escape the FBI or don't or, yeah or the, <laughs> exactly or the FBI keeps I don't know there's a lot of there's a lot of happenstance yeah for sure, sure. It, and it's it's but it's it, it's it's smartly written though in just in a way that it. It keeps you involved with the it's, characters it more matter. than the plot. It, the plot doesn't matter yeah. as much as it's the, the point of it isn't the plot. The point of it is the relationship between these two guys, and there's right. there's the subtext of which is really I think pretty cleverly done. It, it doesn't hit you over the head with it, but the idea of doing the right thing, yeah, so to speak. You didn't dive into this too much in the synopsis element, but. Uh, Kind of one of the sub-stories is that De Niro's character, Jack Walsh, is a former cop who's now a bounty hunter because he didn't want to be part of a, you know corruption in the Chicago Police Department. And the you know mob boss or the drug dealer or whatever, coincidentally, of course, is the same one that this guy happens, that Marcus Dukas was working for. But the reason that the mob is after the Duke in the first place and the reason why he's on the lam is because he stole a bunch of money from them and then donated it to charity. Right. So in a way, <laughs> they're on the same side yeah. of trying to take down this same mob boss. And so there's just there's a, there's a decent little kind of 80s-y moral conflict going on that you know is going to be resolved in the precisely the way 80s 90s moral conflicts are always resolved you know and it kind of takes with robert de niro who you're used to seeing as you know kind of a he's usually playing a kind of a hoodlum or some or kind of character like that or like uh kind of a guy on the edge or something here he's he is that but he's a fairly straight arrow guy i mean he's he refused to take to go on the take, which is why the cops threw him out of, uh, you know, threw him out of their association, and he ended up becoming a bounty hunter. And here you get a kind of a that trope of like the one last score, uh, you know, heist type thing. But it's not a heist. It's like I'm just gonna get one last get big, this one big guy. Payoff. The payoff is gonna be good. And and I then... get out of this this dirty business and go open a cafe or something like that so right so it has that same kind of trope of like this is my one last job that you see in a lot of crime movies or in heist movies one job yeah it's a good one keaton (laughs) (laughs) so the basically um yeah so so what 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 was your overall impression of this movie in terms of this was your first time to see it. It was my second, third time to see it when I watched it for this podcast. So, what did you think of Midnight Run? Um, a lot. I, I thought it was good. I thought it got be- a lot better as it went along. Mm-hmm. It actually took me a little bit of time to get into it. I wasn't interested in it until Charles Grodin appears and until you get to hear him actually start talking. Right. I think that this movie without him is mediocre. Mm-hmm. At best, as good as everybody else is, yeah, and as you know, over the top as Joe Pantoliano always is in a go over the top in a good way. That yeah. he's just kind of a ridiculous, uh, loudmouth. Yeah, and and you know the there there's a little tropey element too to the FBI being like straight laced, but also kind of being incompetent. 
And then yeah, every time, every time behind. the two, every time the two like yes men come up to the the uh, Alonzo, yeah, whatever his name is, he's like, "Am I gonna want to hear this?" They're like, "No, uh, probably is this not." Gonna be good news. <laughs> so yeah. they're like constantly just hearing about something secondhand. Um, all of that stuff is fine, but the thing that makes a movie good is Charles Grodin. Yeah, uh, in my view, and even though De Niro is fine too, everything about the plot is a little cliche. Again, I'm not saying this in a bad way. Right. I'm saying that this is a testament to the reason why this film is still good is because of Charles Grodin. Well, it's also, my, that's my contention. That like he, I'm trying to imagine somebody else in it. Yeah. And I don't. I don't know. I don't know another actor that could have pulled it off in exactly that way. And no. I just don't know that it would have been good. No, it really had to be Charles Grodin. But like you said, it's not. The plot is really. The plot is well constructed. It's but a framework it, but it's for not talking. It's a framework for having the the kind of oddball. It's yeah. the it's the odd couple right. comedy. Absolutely. It's just a framework for that. It, it totally is the odd couple. That's that's a great way of putting it because the um, Charles Grodin is this you know upper class kind of guy, accountant who's made lots of money, and then of course De Niro's like the blue collar you know, life on the streets kind of guy, um, rough and tumble. Yeah, tough, not non-compromising. Yeah. Doesn't, you know. But of course, De Niro is, is the, um, he's clean and, uh, Charles Grodin is actually the criminal, right? So, sort of. I mean, I mean, as as they reveal it, he is. Yeah. And he was kind of like working for the mob unbeknownst to himself. Right, right, right. And then stole from them. Yeah. So he is a criminal, except... That, yeah. That he has, you know, he's he a, has a heart more, of gold kind of Yeah, he criminal. still has... He still has that um, ability to have a sort of a moral high ground. Yeah. No, he is... Uh, his character, to me, is... Would make... The, the, makes me interested in watching the movie again whereas if i had like left that movie mm-hmm. it's just a fine well you know it's a perfectly fine I mean, kind of it's all part of the setup that's uh, the exposition the part that you were not really that intrigued with i mean it's really no no, gotta, no i understand you got to be set up to the nature of um you know because i, I, I know, know i that, that i'm just saying there's a lot of these kind of buddy comedies or odd couple things out there that are like a, but, kind of a dime a dozen and this one is not because okay. Charles Gordon's character is so unique. Well, and and I think that probably before, what was that bounty hunter TV show that was out there, Dog the Bounty Hunter? I don't think probably most people were used to watching uh, the that. Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but most people weren't used to seeing that exact role as a um, as a character in a crime type movie compared to a. Uh, Straight up cop or, or PI, yeah, some kind of detect private detective, but so I think that part of the beginning of the movie is establishing that we all understand the nature of his work and what he's doing. So that's the exposition part of it, and that's the thing that makes it a little bit different than your average, you know, crime or cop movie, um, because the bounty hunter element and that allows it to be a little more plausible as far as the 
trouble with the FBI and and all that stuff. But I mean, I was just I'm I mean, not worried about the plausibility of it. I'm just I saying understand. you asked me about my reaction to it, and my reaction to it is, it's fine. But Charles Grodin makes it great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> Grodin's contribution cannot be minimized. He he even, you know, some of the... Him being the comic actor and having the kind of improv chops, I don't know if that was as much part of De Niro's working style as it was. No, he's much more... He's a, almost exactly the opposite, right? He's I think pretty so. pretty strictly a method. yeah. Uh, kind of person he kind of prepares for the thing but they had things like the famous scene where they're on the railroad uh, car together oh, also that was going to be one of the first that's the first time that it starts the movie starts to warm up to me yeah well it's because, because when they, like, those two guys start to warm up I mean De Niro laughs in that scene for the because because um, or wait know, are you talking about on the train or on the train which the, train? The train where they hop onto it from. Oh, that's later in the yeah, movie. Yeah, later. No, in no, the no. Movie. I was talking about the first train. That's when it start. The movie oh, okay. starts to yeah, warm up that because too. that's the first time you start to really get any sense of. Who you Charles know, Grodin, Grodin is. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. well, Grodin had been walking around kind of pouting, and yeah, and all he did was say, "All he did was like, I can't fly," airplane. and then he has a panic attack, yeah. and then he can't be in a this thing because it's. But then He's the, the part where he starts talking about. You know, Jack Walsh is like, I'm gonna open a restaurant with his his take is yeah. I'm gonna open a coffee shop, and and Grun's like, you know, Red, those are really not profitable. You know, <laughs> yeah, for most a, of them shut down. I, yeah, I mean, if I was your accountant, I wouldn't do that. He's like, you're not. I know, but if I was, <laughs> I would just. I I loved his ability to say something like two or three times to just like kind of get his point across. Like exactly. he does that later in another one of my favorite. After they jump off that second train, he's like, normally people get, the trains have scheduled stops so that so that people can get off. And that's why people get off at those places, because the train is already, so they jumped off a moving train, right, to avoid detection, and he's giving them an explanation of why they should wait till the train stops. I don't know. It's his his time. His comic timing is just even in something that isn't a a punchline like the one you're describing. Like for some reason, that scene where they they're in that town and maybe Amarillo theoretically or something, and they they go into the cafe and he's like another great scene where he's, he's like, like I'm gonna order the no 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 not that when, oh, when they go okay, in okay. and they're gonna order this is not a a joke scene really but he's like oh he want he's hungry and he wants to order and he's like. What do you have? And she's like, Teresa and eggs. And he's like, Teresa, what's that? And then he's like, this is all the money we have, and it's some loose change. And he goes, we have... And, and he says, well, what what can... What do you have? Do you have coffee? How much is the coffee? She's like, 53 cents. And he's like, how much is the iced tea? 53 cents. And he just pauses, and he's like... I'll take the iced tea. Right. Yeah. I don't know why, but that just... Well, so he like, it's like he looked back at the money, but like it was and like he's <laughs> valuing it in his head, like, which one of the two of those things is a better bang yes. for 53 cents? I and mean, he's like, tea. I mean, I'll have the tea. I, 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 I just... The way he says that, it's so funny, and even though it's not a funny... I thought that was it's funny, just, too. just creating a character that's very real and very f- funny because you recognize him from life even if he's not a specific person that you've ever seen before yeah that it, it just absolutely you know just is the genius of Charles Grodin so yeah I think that I think that's putting it really well that one of the things that I liked about him 
And of course, you're supposed to like him. I mean, so he's yeah. supposed to be really likable, even though he's also kind of annoying. But that's real. No, he too, is annoying. You know? But you like you like him. You kind of want to root for him. You definitely don't want to see him get caught by the mob, and probably not by the FBI. Um, and then, but you know, he's you can still also relate to De Niro too, because you know, it's like anything De Niro does, whether it's light up a cigarette or you know, how he drives or whatever, it's, he, Charles Grodin's gonna have a commentary about it, right. you know, like... Or just the fact that he's smoking cigarettes, and yes. he, like, brings up secondhand smoke, and he's, he's like, you realize you're, like, killing lots of innocent people that <laughs> have not chosen to smoke. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man, it's really good, like, and, uh, just, like, commenting about what he, why he's eating chicken... And he's like, have you heard of cholesterol or something like that? <laughs> it's great. No, there were quite a few things, all the memorable moments in that movie to me. Because, like, honestly, the rest of it, like, it, the physical elements of it, some of it is fun. Like, oh, how did they manage to get out of this particular jam? Because they keep getting into a jam with this or that. And, they, of course, it's super unlikely that they're going to um, escape when they're being chased by 50 police cars and a oh, helicopter yeah. in the wilderness, and right, yet exactly. somehow they get out of that, right? But Yeah, well, because um, that guy, other guy picks them up. But. Oh, man, you already mentioned my absolute favorite, which was that if you, like, you lied to me first. I can't expl- describe that scene. Like, people would have to go watch that scene in order to yeah. see that how great that is. But I mean, if you haven't seen Midnight Run, I, I mean, honestly, you know, it's, it, it's a movie that, pretty much everyone likes I mean I've never heard somebody say oh mid- that's seen it and be like oh that's not that good of a movie you know it's it's one of those movies that if you have are well disposed towards comedy or towards action or towards anything you're, I mean you know what uh, it reminds me of in a way mm. although this is after the fact of course yeah. but like a guy I mean, Ritchie, wait, like a you guy did, Ritchie it didn't remind film. you of the movie before you saw it? No. I, what I'm saying is, a movie that <laughs> came a long way after. Perhaps. Right. Yeah. It's like a Guy In Ritchie film. Tradition. Like yeah. Snatch or Lock, yeah. Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. And yeah, that I haven't it's like seen a those. But crime, crime, like the, the Nice Guys or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Right. Yeah. That there's like a comic crime caper yeah. thing going on that's highly character driven. Yeah. Uh, I think Snatch is a good example, also featuring Dennis Farina, mm. but also has like uh, Benicio del Toro and Brad Pitt and Jason Statham and a whole swath of really good uh, character actors in there. Um, it reminds me a lot of that in that yeah. basically everybody in there, uh, basically everybody in there is kind of an idiot in some way. Right. In one way or another. So that's you also know? very true to life too. Right. right exactly. <laughs> but but they're all. There's not really, like, a cookie-cutter evil person. Well, I guess Dennis Farina. I guess the mob boss is the only one. But even, like, the FBI, you kind of want them to win. You kind of want the other bounty hunter to win a little bit, even though he's the biggest moron of all. And you don't necessarily want anybody to get, you know, I don't know. I think think it's pretty good that there's a lot of... It's really well done in that there's a lot of people have an interest in the same thing. And how are all of these threads going to get tied off together so that everybody gets their just desserts and so on and so forth so speaking of the other the other bounty hunter um i was looking at some of the special features on the blu-ray of this movie and i think originally you know the part where he has captured the duke and then he's going to turn him out he's going to sell him out to the uh kind of mobs mob bosses underlings and they 
they um, uh, they meet him in a parking garage or something, and then they end up um, knocking him out and going to take the the duke him, themselves. Well, I think originally they were going to kill off the bounty hunter, and for some reason that was too dark or they didn't like the way that that was making the story work at that point so they had to rewrite it so of course what they did was they have him show up at the airport just at the climactic moment and almost completely ruin everything the, the whole plan right so do you remember the scene with the scene at where he's getting his tickets at the ticket counter yes and uh you he's guys got asked a cigarette. Him, like, how are you gonna pay for yes he yes. has a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and the teller that's the director um, at, in a bit part as the oh really as, yeah and apparently he, he says to him as he's this was not scripted he just says to him he goes will that be smoking or non-smoking and he's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth what do you think it's like take a wild guess <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. so that's that was just a kind of a fun moment uh, that was if you don't know um, the uh, the director um, uh, not Martin Brest. No, super he, had, well he didn't make a right? whole lot of movies. I mean, he made a few of these kind of movies in the eighties, and then he kind of faded away. Well, now another I mean, the inevitable failure of that other bounty hunter is a pretty good running gag too, because it's this... like he keeps he keeps almost. I mean, it's the movie begins by him almost yes stealing a bounty from from basically it's a running gag that like J- Jack yes. Walsh does a lot of work and like roots a guy out and gets shot at and blah 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 and the other guy kind of swoops in at the last minute and like takes credit for it because they're both being yes. pitted against each other by the same you know Joe Pantoliano's yeah, character he just wants the guy he just he doesn't care, care he so pays. he puts yeah, yeah. And if he can pay the more incompetent guy less, then he's even Which he usually is... Off- yeah. That's a whole thing, too, is that he's usually offering he's the under other bit, guy, like, underbidding just him, get in there, like, covering his bases, right? So that's a pretty good the, the, gag, I think, that keeps getting more and more ridiculous as the movie goes on. I mean, the, the movie's able to um, juggle a large number of running gags throughout, which is one of the things that makes it kind of, kind of charming throughout and kind of fun. Um, I was going to say one other thing I discovered after watching this movie last time I was looking at because Joe Pantaleone had said something about in an interview that they were like maybe going to do a reboot of this movie I don't think that ended up happening but I looked up and apparently there was not one not two but three made for TV midnight run sequel movies um, in the nineties, really, that, like hardly anyone has heard of. But yeah, they like not, they, they did rebooting not, the character. Th- it was the same character. It's just that they had a different actor playing him because it's TV, and you know they didn't have Robert De Niro playing in TV movies. Right. But it's um. But it yeah, were, they were just more story. Like they were sequels. Yeah. Prequels. Well, I don't know. I didn't watch them. They're supposed to be pretty bad, but. I mean, I apparently so. there's three of them. You can you can even buy them on DVD if you if you are so inclined. I'm almost in, so, I'm almost half interested to see them. Just I know, but it's like, do you really want to spend that much that, time on? How that? much do I want to spend two or four hours looking at something I know in advance is going to be terrible? Yeah. Sometimes yes. Sometimes, sometimes that is also fun. enjoyable. It could be fun. It might be fun to watch together, but probably I, not on your own. You'd be. It probably would end up being what you just described about the beginning of this mo- this movie that you did did like. You'd probably be like tuning out of it pretty fast because I doubt that they have the level of humor. Again, they're not going to have Charles Grodin in these 
made for TV sequels. They don't even have Robert De Niro at playing Jack Walsh. So, you know, I'm sure it's not that great. But yeah. I just thought it was a funny, weird thing to note that those um, did exist. That is funny. And they're also not... They don't have the same... Uh, creative team either, you know, right. writers and directors and stuff. So um, one thing I was gonna bring up, since you bring up the creative team, is I thought it was a really interesting. I mean, it it, it repeats the same kind of basic couple of notes every time, but it's an interesting Danny Elfman score. Yeah, which I wouldn't even think of as being a. You know, you think of Danny Elfman as, I don't know, maybe uh, he's closely tied to like Tim Burton. And most well, of now what, he is. Yeah, now, but Tim Burton wasn't really a thing as much at this point. No, not until he made right, Batman. This is right before Batman. Right, Batman is nineteen ninety nine. Right, big. Yeah, this is where he's. You know, Tim Burton's writing big, like orchestral scores. You know, the big. You mean symphonic. Danny Elfman? Yeah, sorry, Danny Elfman writing big, symphonic scores now. But you think of where he came from, Danny Elfman. You know, is he has like a rock and roll background. So. I know. That's why it's an interesting score because it has. It just kind of has like a little kind of twangy, twangy, uh, saxophony, noirish, but in a Vanny, very Danny Elfman kind of way. That is, yeah. I don't know. I think it's interesting that the score manages to somehow be almost a comic riff on the you know noir PI detective kind of soundtrack. I thought I thought it was fun. I thought it added a, a, an interesting dimension to the to the movie. Um, I didn't pay very much attention to most of the other technical elements, at least in terms of, you know, the special effects or the cinematography or anything like that. Um, I don't think that that was really the main point of that that movie, though. Um, I don't know if that you had thoughts on those things, really, but no, I mean, I think it's a well directed movie. It's it's um, you know, the uh, action is always very clear. I like that the there are a lot of chances for us to see there's a lot of especially like in the cars there's a lot of two shots so you get to see the actors really playing off each other rather than just a lot of put together in editing room you know back and forth um, shots I mean of course they have that as well but there's there's a lot of shots where you really do see the actors together in the same shot I mean not only De Niro and Grodin but De Niro and Joe Pantolani and um, Joe and that other guy behind him, who's his other little minion in the in the bond. Yeah, yeah. Saying, do you recognize that? What I movie? I do recognize him, but I couldn't. I, as soon as you tell he's me, he's in I the bet. Sting. Oh yeah, he's, he's the, like the guy. Yeah, he's, he's the guy with the mustache in the Sting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he looks very different without well, the mustache. He's ten years older, also at this point, at least. Yeah, ten or fifteen. Yeah. So, but it, but he looks different without the mustache. Yeah, but he still has the same. Like, yeah. Now you pointed out, he's super pockmarky faced yeah. guy. Yeah. But he also has a a nice little running gag of yeah. like, I'll go get some donuts. I'll go yeah. get some donuts. Yeah. <laughs> you want some donuts? Yeah. It's like donuts. His thing donuts every time, good. Every yeah. time he's gonna go like, he's but, so. But the thing Joe is, it always works. No, I know. Well, so I think to explain that, like Joe Pantoliano's employee or whatever who's always answering the phone is also secretly like selling, feeding, him, out to the selling mob. him out to the mob so that he thinks he's going to get a payday out of it yeah. so every time he needs to go contact them he's just like oh that's too bad I'll get some donuts yeah. or hey let's celebrate I'll get donuts <laughs> you know like no matter what the occasion 
I gotta get donuts. Yeah. And does he ever come back with the donuts? We never we see don't know, that. Because he just goes. He to probably the just forgets and comes right back. And Joe Pantaleone is so so focused on. He doesn't want donuts. He just wants some more. You know, Mylanta or or you know. I also thought uh, Joe Pantoliano's uh, costuming was really oh, yeah. the costuming is pretty good in this. I mean, yeah. De Niro kind of wears what you would expect him to wear. You know, he's the got the leather jacket or whatever. Uh, but I don't know. I thought the costuming was all really good in this. Yeah. Um, everybody was really good. All the little bit parts, even the two kind of bumbling like mafioso henchmen. Yeah. Guys are like I know I laughed for some reason really hard at one point where like, you know Dennis Farina's character calls after one of the fa- many failed attempts for them to to get that he calls him and he's like Dennis Farina's always making some absurd threat like I'm gonna make sure that you I stab you in the heart with a pencil or something you know yeah. like and then he like I don't know Dennis Farina's upset with them for not catching Charles Grodin's character. Calls him, yells at him, and hangs it up. And the other guy's like, "Is he upset with me?" <laughs> like, of course he's upset. Wait, he's not upset with me, is he? <laughs> like, I just thought that was a funny bit. I don't know. Uh, so lots of good stuff. We liked. We really liked uh, Midnight Run, and we really recommend you, our listener, check it out. Um, did you have any last thoughts on it, or no? Uh, right. I, I, great recommendation. Like I said, I'm, I'll Glad probably even it. go back to it because I thought it was so funny. Yeah, it's good stuff. So that brings us to the end of our first half, and we're going to hear a word from... We, we actually got two new sponsors this week. So we're, we're really privileged to have um, two great animal athletes um, sponsoring us this week. We yeah, have, we've always been big fans of animal athletes. Animal athletes, absolutely. And the, with this, this being an, an Olympic year, it's also, of course, an animal Olympic year. And so we, you know, we have Bolt Jenkins on behalf of Toasted Gecko Flakes, and uh, Dory Turnell, the great figure skater, um, on behalf of Prenet um, for all of your your feather um, washing needs. So let's hear from uh, let's Bolt hear from Jenkins. Both of them. Hi, like, you know, I'm Bolt Jenkins, and I logged a lot of miles and down a lot of Toasted Gecko Flakes on my way to a gold medal. Cause, Cause they gave me like an extra boost, you know, when I needed it. Toasted Gecko Flakes, the breakfast of chimps. See Here Brother is also sponsored by Prenet, gentle molting shampoo. Oh, softest feathers yet, get Prenet. Pre, 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 Prenet. Okay, so. Awesome. Thanks to our, we're excited. Thank you, Hopefully Pre-Net. they'll stick around. It's uh, very unlikely, but we have hopes that this time our sponsor will will um, approve of our content. I mean, it's been it's been kind of <laughs> well. And best sketchy. of luck also to Bolt and uh, and Dory and yeah, the, I'm and not the upcoming. Sure. I'm not sure they, how they did in the, in the trials. They're probably retired by now, but that might be. You know, yeah. this was from you know 1980, 1980. So. <laughs> hey, look, uh, I think uh, Misty May and Carrie Walsh were athletes until like last year or something. They or one of them was trying even still this year. So well, there you go. You know, some people just you know. Actually, keep on going. Animals, you know, you never know how long they're gonna go. Exactly. I don't know what the natural life for a uh, lifespan for an alligator is. Or a flamingo. Or a flamingo. Yeah. Anyway, probably probably not that long. So, um, (laughs) speaking of feathers, um, (laughs) you and the segues, man, you're you're mastering that. Speaking of feathers, we uh, have a have a um, a story that I'm gonna let Rich talk about. Yeah. So. 
Finding Billy Whitefeather. Like I say, I came across this short story a number of years back, reading through one of the best of the year anthologies that are pretty frequently um, cobbled together. Um, and some of them are, are like better yearly. than others. Yeah. Uh, almost almost that's once about, per year. That's yeah. pretty much the frequency. All right, yeah. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> that is, that's true. That was a stupid, <laughs> stupid thing to say. So there's my faux pas for the for the broadcast there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really, the, the quality of those anthologies... Wait, was really that de- you that said that or me? It, Am I saying... It, I, I will leave it up to our listeners to decide. Well, was it dumb? Then it was not we can me. Put a, maybe we can put a poll at the end of this. Or like a put Which a one of us poll. is saying the dumb thing? <laughs> That's a fun poll. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, no, I for some reason this this story has stuck with me. Uh, and, and so we'll, we'll talk about, you know, reactions here in a second. But the, the gist of it is there's a gentleman, a gentleman by the name of Oliver Campbell. And they live on a ranch in what is, I guess, Wyoming. Wyoming. Um, and they live in fairly, I mean, most of Wyoming is fairly rural. But uh, they live close to a ranch and also close to a, an Indian reservation nearby there. And a, a number of kind of small establishments. And there's not a ton of plot to speak of. Uh, he wakes up one day to find there's a note on his door that says, you know, there were twin horses born to, to purchase contact Billy Whitefeather. So he's never met Billy Whitefeather and is curious about this note and kind of tracks down the, the origin of this and, you know, goes to town or whatever and tracks down the, the origin of this. The, the, the story of the two horses being born is true, but they belong to somebody else. So this mystery starts to arise of who is this Billy Whitefeather character? Why is he putting a note on my door about to sell me horses that are not his to sell? So most of the short story is him kind of wandering around the the town and meeting some of the different people and starting to dig into the character of this Billy Whitefeather individual. And every person he talks to has, nobody likes him, and yet nobody has exactly the same description of him. In fact, markedly different descriptions of him. Contradictory descriptions. Right, to the point where... At the, uh, you know, the first person says, oh, I that guy is just a, you know, there, there's, he's like, what, you know, kind of tribe of, of American Indian is he? And he's, oh, he's not, a, he's not an Indian. He's a, a white guy with blonde hair and blue eyes. And then the next person says he's an enormous guy with red hair and a mustache. And then one person yeah. says, oh, he's definitely an Indian. He has a black hair and a long braid and so on and so forth. So somehow there's this character roaming around causing he's you know stolen from somebody or he's run out of town with somebody's money or he has violated someone's daughter or whatever and yet nobody knows who he is and then every time he goes to the next person they're like well that's not the whole story but they did this and I hate them for this other reason so he keeps pursuing this until the point where he finally is he's kind of obsessed with it to the point where he finally drives like down to Denver which is a pretty far drive I've actually made that drive it's pretty Mm -hmm. far it's lovely, but don't do it in November. I've done it too. Oh, you have? From Wyoming to Denver? Yeah. Why? Well, because my wife's grandparents used to live in Denver, and we had some friends that live in Wyoming, and we went... You have friends that live in Casper. 
No, not Casper. Really? Somebody... Lander. Oh, because somebody in Casper knew you when I was there. Or knew Lindsay. Well, it's anything's possible, folks. I guess. So anyway, this is how bounty hunters get you. They find (laughs) you, they ask people, and then they, you know, somebody knows somebody. Right. But no, I actually have driven between Denver and a part of Wyoming. That's funny. And back, and uh, yeah. I did that last two years ago when I had to try to get there for a a job. You know, I couldn't fly to It was to in the summer. Casper. It wasn't in the winter, which I... Yeah. Yeah, well, this was, and that's yeah. why I couldn't fly to Casper, so right. I had to... Anyway, so he makes that drive, which is a long drive. Yeah, I mean, Wyoming is wide open country. I mean... There... It, it really shouldn't be a state, I think, but it is, but, you know... Why? It why because it has fewer people in it than like the town we grew up in. So yeah, that's why. But anyways, yeah. that's getting a little bit too uh, off the beaten path of yeah. the story here. Anyway, none of that comes up Speaking in the story. In fact, the story I doesn't really have their like, beaten path. But <laughs> no, they had I'm at least kidding, one. I'm they had at least Wyoming one is highway. A lovely, sit, a lovely state. They had at least I'm one highway because okay. I drove on it. Yeah, they do. Anyway, he drives down to Denver because that's the last report that he he ultimately gets. Drives down, has mm-hmm. like an address that apparently this Billy Whitefeather person lives. Goes there. Unsurprisingly, Billy Whitefeather is not there either. Um, his wife at some point... His wife is an interesting character in this. Oliver's but, wife, not Billy. Yeah, Oliver's wife at, at, at some point is like, why are you doing this? And he's like... He was on our porch, you know. Yeah. That's kind of like a, an important. But she knows. Line, but she knows he needs to do this. He needs to right. follow this, or else it'll drive him nuts. Right. But he drives all the way down to Denver, goes to this address. Billy Whitefeather is not there. The person who is there dismisses him as rudely as possible, closes the door, and then that's the end of the story. So yeah, it. I don't know. So before we talk about my my thoughts on it, what what did you have to say about this? What what were your thoughts on this? So it's an interesting story. Um, the I liked the, um, the it's a there's a lot of dialogue in it. So the characters are obviously short story. You know, it's with quite a few you know characters that show up. None of them. It's not like they're they're there to um, too long to develop the character. But with just a few lines of dialogue for pretty much any given character you get a real sense of like at least a type personality type that each one is so it's a it's a it's a sharply observed um little vignette of this area um and you get a real sense of the diversity even even though i was jokingly um putting down the low population of the state of wyoming there still is a there still is is kind of the whole American clash of cultures because obviously the whole kind of fraught um, history of reservation life and what that has led to is kind of always implicit in in a setting like that and but it's it's just kind of um, it's sort of background for this the plot of this story but it's it, it informs, does provide some tension. Yeah, and it informs the point of it, and it gives you the diversity of character even in a place like that. Um, so as far as the my um, 
so I enjoyed that kind of aspect of it. I also kind of think that just this isn't really about necessarily... I'm not really sure if I know what to think. Maybe in this discussion we'll kind of come up with something, but I'm not really sure if I know what to think about the, the kind of over overall theme of it other than a sort of generic sense of, like, we all know uh, two things. One, we all know it's like to kind of, like, get bugged by something that you just have to go deal with, and yet you can't deal with it. Like, you can't resolve it due to circumstances that are totally outside of your own control even if you drop everything and and hunt after that you still can't can't achieve it and the second thing is this sense of the Billy Whitefeather character of being this kind of elusive person that nobody really knows who he is um, even on such a basic physical description that you know as you, you said that there's three or four different completely contradictory physical descriptions. Yeah. To the point where he almost even makes it, he does make a joke about it. He's, it's one of the funniest moments in the whole thing where he's like, well, I'm just trying to think if I know any tall, short, fat, skinny, blonde, blonde, black haired, blue eyed, white Indians or something like that. So, but that I, to me, that kind of evokes this sense of something that I've thought about before, which is that, even when you know somebody else really well, even if you live with them um, or you work with them every day or something, you can never really know what somebody else is. Like our, our ability to like actually perceive the inner self and the thoughts and the motivations and the who that person is just on a fundamental level is always going to be a barrier to us you know we can never truly cross that void between our consciousness and someone else's and so this is obviously a physical um, absurdity like I mean on a plot level this does you know this mystery you know if this was like a father brown mystery or something you know there, it would be set up like this and then there would be some weird resolution that would show why this guy was seen in all of these different contradictory disguises or something and there'd be some kind of clever way that it all wrapped up but in this story there is not a, there's no resolution it just it's, ends it's about as resolution free as a story, any story I've ever come across so given that it makes you think or at least makes me think perhaps about that on a more metaphorical level rather than the actual mystery like can I think of a way that this that I could solve what why this happens um, that he encounters all of this um, this mystery or why did Billy Whitefeather do the thing that he initially did um, or but, is there such a person or, yeah or, or, or but but I mean like can I come up with a, a solution to the mis- right. the central mystery um, I think because of the fact that it's left the way it is, he it's not the point of the story. It seems Definitely to be not. more like something like I'm I'm trying to get at that this elusive sense of the other that we can never totally understand somebody else and somebody else's motivations, no matter how much we reach out to try to yeah to solve the mystery of the other person. Yeah. So maybe that I kind of talked myself through. So maybe that's what I took from the. Yeah, 
It took me what it it is unco- very unconventional structurally. Um, I think you hit on the, some important attributes of why this is is an excellent story. Uh, one of them is the economy of prose. So uh, Everett is pretty masterful, as you say, in doing a lot with very little, in terms of his his prose matches the space in which he's writing about. So. For instance, there are a lot of somewhat clipped sentences. You won't find probably oh, yeah. it's probably an eighth grade reading that. level. Yeah, it's very um, um, if yeah, there, if it's that. not florid at all. It's like he did this. He said he this. Did this. He did this. He closed yeah. the door. Right. He says, "Hey, the dog should do this." The it's dog only didn't the very minimum of the dog what you said need. Nothing. But it's yeah. That doesn't mean it's bad. It means it's no, no, it, no. it's done very well and sparsely. Um, it's kind of like the. Wyoming territory. It's, exactly, it, it kind of evokes in a very oblique way the setting as well. Very much, very much so. The snow let up a little bit, right? right? A sentence like that, where sure. instead of it being like snow fell like papery, blah blah blah, right? There's there's no I I don't know if I can think of a metaphor What's the opposite that's in of there. Purple, uh, gray. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, it is not. It's not purple. I right. mean, it's very very literal. Um, that's an important aspect of the of why it's a why it's such a good story. I do think that you're right about the quality of characters that you meet who have maybe one or two lines right? and how different they feel just based on here's one sentence description about them, here's one action that they did and like maybe two things that they're doing. Yeah. Like for instance, or, his or wife, I mentioned say, his wife. Or they say one thing and the way that other people respond to it. The way that the response is, that tells you something about their kind of Right. shorthand banter that sets up a character in a very, very economical way. Right, right. Um, there's a lot of richness in the personal interplay there. Uh, particularly, I think, there's a really rich relationship there between he and his wife. Mm-hmm. That I just... That's one of the things that yeah, I have comes loved. and moves the... She, Every time he comes in, she's couch. doing some project, yeah. and he's like, "You're gonna hurt yourself." Yeah. She's moving a couch, or she's moving the they bag move of the couch, and you're like, "No, no, move it's wrong. Move know. it back." Yeah. But he doesn't ever. I one of the things I love about that relationship is that he doesn't come in and be like, "Why are you doing that?" He right. just comes in and helps her, right. and then is like, "Oh yes," and the, and she's just kind of she's very jovial and loving, and yeah. I don't know. There's something. There's a really rich interplay in that relationship yeah. that, that I love. Um, but I, I think that I hadn't really thought of it about the perspective of the completeness of knowing someone. I think that that has been written about a lot. Um, and maybe that is part of the, part of the theme here. Um, I thought of it more in sort of the first element of what you were talking about in terms of being, and, and why I think it fits kind of well with a manhunt like Midnight Run is that there's a certain, you know, uh, in Midnight Run, Jack Walsh is after the Duke, but that's not what he's after. Right. He's after getting out of the business, or yeah, he's, he's after, after money, paycheck. or there's something else. And so that but what, what he that, thinks about what he thinks about who what assumptions he makes about who he is changes multiple times, partly because the Duke is dishonest with him. At various points, but also partly but not because, first. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't know he was being dishonest. <laughs> but partly because, you know, the Duke he, is really good at fleshing him out. Yeah, 
Well, and he, he partly because he's he makes assumptions about who he is, and 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 you know, and you know, and the Duke is almost like in a way, not to turn this part all about um, Midnight Run, Midnight Run, but in a way, he's the one like Oliver is searching to find out who is Billy Whitefeather and what the hell is he doing? Like, right. what's his point? What is the well, what the is Duke in, in Midnight Run? He's like, well, who is Jack Walsh? He's really the one searching for him as a person. Right. He keeps asking him to open up to him and asking him personal questions. Why do you have that watch? What you know? What's yeah. the personal significance of that particular why watch? Didn't, why did you get? He asks him several times and eventually gets him to say like, Why didn't the police? Why didn't the police force? Yeah. Like why you? the police force not like you? Why don't you spend some time why with your you ex wife and yeah. your daughter you haven't seen in a dozen years or whatever? So that kind of thing. To where we make assumptions about each other. So, like, here's a question. So, in Billy Whitefeather, finding Billy Whitefeather, if, you know, there wasn't these weirdly contradictory physical descriptions, what would, if it was only the first one, which was, I think, the one the where blonde he's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, blue yeah. skinny white guy, what assumptions do we as a reader make about this character that we then carry forward um, because of that one physical description, what well, changes? And not just the physical description, but keep in mind also the name Billy White Feather. Right, exactly. and it's not White yeah. Feather one word. No, it's it's White Space Feather. Yes. And so, I'm just saying, as part and parcel yeah. of that physical description, people also in that book and you, the reader, probably are insinuating something about that character because yeah. there's some characters like well I've never seen him but he's obviously an Indian right exactly. because of that name or I what have not seen he him do? he doesn't sound like an Indian to me like right. all the, these yeah. kinds of assumptions that yeah so anyway I didn't mean to jump no over no you, that's 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 exactly right you know we we make assumptions based on um, you know like why is Midnight Run why does he have a nickname he's not just Jonathan Mardukas he's Jonathan the Duke Mardukas you know what is the Duke? I mean, the Duke is John Wayne's nickname. What it, the Duke sounds like a some kind of pretension to royalty, like a guy who's you know an underworld figure, the Godfather, the you know. He, but he turns out to just be a a, a dude. He's a <laughs> pencil. He's a pencil pusher and a and a guy. You know, he's an accountant. Literally, he's just just. Yeah, literally. I think that's a really clever so, aspect of of Midnight Run that. Now that I'm looking at it in in that context, that it's definitely designed to set you up for, um, you know, thinking that this guy's going to be some kind of tough yeah, guy, mob mafioso guy. or whatever, and he's just a yeah, a, a white collar. I'm a white collar criminal, exactly. Like <laughs> which is a line that I didn't even bring up, but that yeah. is one of my favorite lines in that. Um, yeah, so. I think, I don't know, one of the reasons, I, my reaction to this story was similar to yours in the sense that when I first read it, I was like, I don't I don't totally know what I just read. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those works of art that marinates for a long time yeah, and that doesn't ever, because I'm sure I've read hundreds of short stories, if not maybe into the thousand or more, and not every short story just kind of sits there and, and germinates. Yeah and keeps returning to mind and this one does yeah and so i've gone back to it and read it four or five times and every time i get a little bit more richness from it even though it's not like it's it's not like it's embedded with tons of hidden code or meaning or something right 
um, as we already well, talked I mean, about the one, pros. But one way you could say about the the finding Billy Whitefeather, the action in the in the story, is sort of you know it's kind of a I guess I guess you would call this postmodern sort of thing that as a reader we're we're constructing our own meaning of it, but just as the Oliver is kind of constructing his own understanding of who this other person is gradually and but he's never able to completely come up with the answer I mean there's you know in some way people always are more complicated than any box we can put them in so maybe that's part of the I mean not that this is a moralizing story that has that has a uh, no, I don't think I don't think it has a. I don't, I don't think it's at being, the end of the story, right. but I do think that that's one thing that we are led to contemplate is that um, not only does Oliver not able is he not able to uh, pin down Billy Whitefeather, but neither is anybody else, and 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 they actually kind of resist the. Not only do they they seem to hate Billy Whitefeather, everyone like you said, but they also seem to resist the project that he's on of finding a lot of them do yeah they resist and in in so they're suspicious of it so in a sense they're resisting his project of figuring that guy out well i mean i think their resistance most of the characters anyway it'll the interaction would be something like this it would be like hey i heard that you know this character and there or i heard that you know billy whitefeather and their first reaction is I well, if I don't know him, and if you know him, I don't want to know you. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like Billy Whitefeather is at the core of like every rotten. It's I I don't know. There's almost like something it's about like kind of yeah. It's or or it's about the rottenness in all of us in a way. Right. <laughs> I don't not to be too meta and read too much into what yeah. what or Everett was trying to do, but it's like nobody wants to talk about the rotten thing that they know. And so if yeah. they are associated with Billy Whitefeather, they want to deny that. They don't want to like put play their cards on the table. And be like, yeah, he he stole from me, or yeah, I was his boyfriend or yeah. uh, his girlfriend or whatever for a well, while. Also, or whatever. I mean, if to get back to the the issue of uh, the native and Anglo relations, I guess you could say you have you know a guy who let's assume he is as bad as everyone says, regardless of what the specifics are, or if even he, one person says, <laughs> yeah. Let's assume he's a rotten apple. Well, there's a, a whole thing of not wanting to be associated with the rotten apple, um, and therefore ascribing his character, uh, other characteristics, that you know, assign him to a different group than you belong to. Um, I'm not sure if that's consistent in the thing, but I don't know. I'd have to look at that to see if, like, maybe a like a native person I don't know who the, the first person he meets is just like a person who works at a gas station yeah he's ambiguous I, in, in terms of he or I'm she I'm not sure if they're okay I don't if even if they're remember. ambiguous in terms of their identity as far as the tribal or 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 um, not but yeah um, yeah but but I mean I think the general point still holds that you know there is a sense that there's a um, a willingness to cr- to agree to the badness of someone if they're not part of your family, tribe, yeah. um, group, social circle, whatever, um, they're always, you know, people are on the other side of the tracks are bad or, or what or have you. Or people on the other, I mean, in a, but ever, I think everybody in 
their friend group or in their family group or something might have somebody who is like, yeah, well, that uncle is X, Y, Z. He's crazy because X. Or she's, you know, oh, that friend, well, you know, she fell off the deep end. I'm not her. I think everybody kind of distances themselves a little bit from whatever relationship they may have had in the past with somebody who is... But there's also an interesting juxtaposition. The other thing I like pointing out about this story, there's also an interesting juxtaposition between this quest that the guy is on, but also the lives of everybody are going on, and his life in reality is also going on. Just in day-to-day, everything else that happens other than this story is just regular day-to-day stuff. The vet arrives and drops off the shots for his horses. Yeah. He has a cup of coffee with him. They comment on the weather. Yeah. His wife moves a bag of manure. He goes to the place where the horses are born. The horses, and then a day later, hears that the horses didn't make it. And then everyone says, that's a shame. Yeah. Like, there's life, there's death, there's all the nat, every. So there's like this interesting juxtaposition of the quest of knowing, whether that is knowing the numinous or knowing yourself or knowing another person but also that that happens within the context of the day-to-day life the horse being born the horse dying well and there's also a tendency to make those um pedantic or those um those very basic elements of life to become infused with meaning and significance um like the horses being born the the pair of horses um not only is that the event that kind of kickstarts the finding billy white feather journey but it's also kind of like seen as a portentous um sign you know like is this going to be good luck or is this going to be bad luck you know if these horses uh, because it's unusual that something that's unusual is given and that nobody saw coming is given extra natural significance of some kind right. by people and that which is the um, same kind of thing in reality that's the same thing that's going on with this note why it's right. such a bug in it's Oliver's. weird and unusual but it's not like it's improbable perhaps but it's not like supernatural but right. yet we start to feel like it must be there must be some kind of um some kind of higher meaning in this because it's so uh, eerie or co- you know coincidences yeah. and unusual events um, you know must have some kind of must point to some um, some destiny or something you know like he's got to go I mean he even goes on a quest he goes on a journey you know to his trip to Denver I mean not that they say it in those words in the book but no but it's clearly a quest yeah. I mean it's a I mean it's fine usually it's when good. we read a quest story like that we get the resolution of the quest and the hero the hero gets the um, the hero gets the the object of the quest or or doesn't or fails well, but in this case neither one really happens right he kind of does find find Billy Whitefeather, sort of, but he just gets rebuffed by a different person and never... Right. So we don't know what happens next. to go get out of here. Right. Yeah. Um, So on the whole, then, uh, I I don't know. I found it to be, as I say, something that stuck with me for a while and that I went back to. I find it to be an interesting kind of meditation on the idea of 
and the, I the persistent need to know mm-hmm. whether that's another person as you as you yeah. astutely observed or the meaning of everything as you were just kind of talking about it, mm-hmm. th- there's just everyone has this persistent need to know yeah and no matter what you will never have the whole picture yeah. Even you might have disparate parts of the picture that make no sense, yeah. or you might have a lot of concrete information. But no matter what, even if you get to the end and find what you're looking for, I, I also find, and I'm I'm a big proponent of. You can ask one of my writing friends of of the precision of titles, because he never gave work titles to his works. And I was like, what's the title of the work? It always drove me nuts because there's so much that can be done in that, and the yeah. fact that it's called finding. Yeah. Billy Whitefeather, as opposed to searching for, yeah, is a very big difference in my view because he doesn't actually you also, find him. You also right? get, you also really get what the what the title promises. <laughs> yeah, like if you oh, the title say, is a lie. That's you what want, I mean. <laughs> I mean, it's a lie, but it's all it. It's also true. You know, it's like um, that's all that happens is a guy is finding this guy. I mean, right. So it's true. It's it it. it that's true. I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, it totally encapsulates everything that's happening, and yet it, I'm, it, I'm not even sure if lie. they ever ran at midnight in Midnight Run, but it, no, but it does tell you kidding. what a midnight run I know, is. I'm just kidding. There. I'm just um, kidding. But on but, the whole, is it something that you uh, enjoyed, or yeah? I mean, like you said, it's stuck with you. It. I mean, it's definitely stuck with me since yesterday when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> It has to start somewhere. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I, I mean, I, I think the discussion bears it out that I, I think there was a lot to think about in it, and it was, um, you know, and it was a, um, a well-crafted story. I, I like reading uh, short stories like that where, um, you know, a lot of short stories is, is a place where authors will make a ambig- really express ambiguity um, that, that doesn't quite make sense. It, they'll use they very amb- clearly yeah. express clearly express <laughs> their ambiguity. No, but a lot of short stories are kind of left unresolved, and it's been at least I find that that's a kind of a hallmark of some some authors. It as is more so now, as opposed to maybe 40, 30, 40 years ago. The big idea, not maybe not forty years ago, maybe like sixty years ago. Yeah. The big idea in more of a heyday of the short story. The short story is not as in its most. Um, I don't think that it's the richest environment culturally for short stories right now, just like it is. Well, there's for, not just as like many poetry. periodicals and stuff for them to exactly. be published in. I mean, exactly. People, if you're gonna, if you're a person who would have gotten something out of a short story, you're now somebody who uh, binge watches Netflix. So, I, I'm no, I'm serious. Yeah. I'm not trying to be critical of that. I just no. mean the person who has definitely the, people the read thirty less, minute attention span for a yeah. self-contained kind of. Well, somebody who all I was going to say though is that this one, you know, I do feel I have felt in some stories, not that I'm wary of ambiguity, but sometimes I just can't kind of I have I sometimes short stories that I, I read them and I'm like I kind of like that writing of it, but I didn't have anything to kind of grasp. And this one didn't leave me that way. So I do recommend um it's worth it's worth a read and um you know, just like anything we discuss here, even though we kind of talked about the entire outline of it, any work of art to me that you can, um, even if you know everything that happens in it, if you can experience it the way that it was, the way that it was created to be experienced, in other words, reading the short story, 
um, it's still worth reading, not just to know what happened, but to see the that craft of the yeah, and to really experience it that way. So, anyways, um, yeah, it, yeah, it's, 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 it's good. A, it's definitely a, a well crafted story. The other thing, just from a technical story standpoint, that I do like about this story is that one sort of common mechanism of the short story is almost in the same way that you would like that you have a 30 minute TV episode like an episode of 24 at the very end in the last two seconds there's a twist right the big twist is the important thing in most short stories and this short story succeeds without that at all right there's not really a surprise in this short story except that the surprise may be that there's not a surprise in a sense right like it's it's I don't know. Yeah, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, there's several. If you look at the unfolding mystery of it as a series of twists, maybe. You or could, if you look at the thing, like certainly he's going to find some sort of answer to right. this. Which I mean, and I don't know why you wouldn't think that as you're reading it. You no, know, it's, the first it time. It seems like it's inexorably. You know, that's uh, what I accelerating thought. But, but I wasn't. But let me just put it this way: I wasn't disappointed that it was left unresolved it just led me to think about it you know because yeah. there can be a sense and sometimes where you're like well did they just not know how to finish the story you know but that no that that's this never not feels what I that get. way yeah yeah this so. feels like it was very intentional so good i'm glad you liked it i um i highly recommend that short story of course because i recommended it to you but uh, yeah you recommend it because you recommended it i agree yeah, I agree. That I, that you, I'm all I, of, I agree hey, that you recommended I'm on, it. I'm on point today. Um, <laughs> awesome. So I think that was something he said this time. I didn't uh, say that for sure. Neither, neither did I. Yeah. <laughs> um, so by way of closing, two things. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Our next episode. Do you want to talk about episode first, or do you want to talk about? Okay, sorry. Well, what, I, what I jumped been, in. Uh, that oh, was fine. Pro- that was him that said something. Yeah, because that was he screwed up. That's fine. Yeah. Um, do you want what? What else have you been uh, looking at reading? So yeah, I have recently this summer. Um, I read a graphic memoir of John Lewis um, that he he wrote with some a collaborative writer and, and artist. Um, so it's like a comic book form, but it's John Lewis the who just died last year was a congressman. And uh, one of the most important figures in the civil rights movement of the 60s and, you know, going forward. And this um, memoir that he wrote uh, is called March. It's in three volumes. I checked it out from the library and I just highly recommend it. I mean, I don't want to get too bogged down in politics on this um, podcast, but... Um, I think that just in the current That's climate, for our other podcast. Our other podcast called Death getting to bog- Politics. Oh, Death to Politics. I'm oh, sorry. I was. I thought it was Getting Bogged Down in Politics. <laughs> our podcast Getting Bogged Down. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but it's seriously, though, it's. I, I think that in this climate that looking back to see just how difficult of a struggle it was to get to the point where we had very basic imperfectly enacted but still very basic civil rights for all Americans, all black Americans and and other um, minorities was just seeing how difficult that was, you know, it's a good reminder for us today. So I, yeah. I recommend March Not that we're there not that we're there. No, I'm saying that we need to remind ourselves that that it that struggle was not um, 
just something that happened in the past and now we're we're at that it's something that's ongoing and also to see what it took to get there is very vividly put on display in that in that series and i i do highly recommend it because it's from the perspective of even though it's written as a comic book it's from the perspective of john lewis himself he helped he was a co-author so yeah what about you what have you been uh i haven't really you know i don't watch as much stuff as you do but reading wise a lot quite a few things um most notably i think a book called weapons of math destruction i'm not sure if i mentioned this before or not but by kathy o'neill mm-hmm. um, did i mention that already I don't think on so. a previous episode okay I Weapons know. of I don't math. listen to these episodes. Why, why not? <laughs> well, I You're listen gonna, to them the look, first... No, no wonder our sponsors are constantly leaving us. The whole thing is to make an episode and then go listen to it on repeat as many times as possible to oh. get yourself paid. I see. Obviously, you don't know how this is done. Um, no, it's Weapons like of Math... upside-down pyramid scheme. <laughs> it's like a pyramid scheme with only one brick in it. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep stacking it on top of itself. <laughs> um... No, Kathy O'Neill. So she's a former, um, she's a PhD in, it's in a Mobius in strip variety. pyramid scheme. <laughs> a Mobius, a Mobius scheme. <laughs> Sorry, that was just my joke of math destruction. There, it's it's pretty destructive. So, okay. um, no, it's a really interesting book about the way that algorithms uh, have been used in sort of a weaponized way in the last, you know, approximately twenty years or so, and so. Uh, the major premise is that if you, just to take one minor example, one of the more, uh, what I think is one of the more pressing examples, for instance, uh, there's a school district that's struggling, so they hire a company who has an algorithm that's supposedly going to tell them which teachers are performing at a high level and not at a high level. This algorithm gets run and it tells them these are the teachers you should fire, right? Seems so much more efficient than having to make all these decisions or something, but inevitably, of course, the wrench in works is that some of the most popular and successful teachers get fired. So it's a book that's largely about, um, it, the, the underlying premise is largely how these algorithms are not only um, being used in a sort of weaponized way, but they're also proprietary, right? So in a system that normally would rate teachers, this somehow, because it's some other company's property, is um, proprietary, so you can't know why you're being fired, right? That's There's no visibility into it, and also, they're uh, inherently unjust. And so there's other examples involving, like, uh, uh, you know, particularly pertinent examples involving uh, recidivism rates for, for criminals, um, things like that. So it's a really, really fascinating read about the way in which uh, m- mathematics have really been used uh, to um, increase uh, inequity in the in the in the United States in particular. Um, I actually found out about it via a documentary called Coded Bias, which was largely about the sort of scandal that was uncovered around facial recognition technology. Yeah and how it couldn't recognize faces of color. And so mm-hmm. it was confusing individuals with you know, other individuals that were wanted for crimes and things of that nature. And it was really, really pretty, uh, pretty famous uh, sort of, I guess, scandal that happened a few years back, but also good watching, good reading there. So yeah, um, and, and I think that um, 
problem with algorithms is actually the plot of this new Space Jam movie, so very timely. Um, <laughs> actually, is that what you've watched? I didn't, oh, no, I didn't watch yet? it. No, it just came out, but I'm not watching that. But that's that's what I've read about. So let's re- all right. <laughs> let's let's tease let's the next one. The, so are, we are going to finally get to another midnight. We're going to talk about Midnight's Children, the novel from Salman Rushdie, and we're also going to pair with that another um, work from the Indian subcontinent, um, Satyajit Rai's um, film. Devi, which um, is a is a really great film. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's exciting. I think you're gonna like it a lot, and I think we're gonna find some really fruitful um, in, uh, connections between these two works of great um, artists from that region of the world. So, yeah, we're really excited. Until about next that. time, we look forward to uh, having you back with us again. But please give us a comment on uh, social media on Twitter. We're at See Here Brother. Um, you can send us an email at uh, seeherebrother at gmail.com or you can just scream into the void and maybe it will come yes yeah. that's what uh, we usually you do. could you could also I guess alternatively make a podcast about this podcast and then yeah. we would follow that we would as like well. that so yeah no uh, thanks for listening everyone happy to have you on board uh, looking forward to having you back next time all right. Have a nice one. So if your lucky star deserts you, and if shadows fall, even though it hurts you, laugh through it all. Be a cheerful loser, you have the world to gain. If you want the rainbow, why you just must have the rain. Thank you.